Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Welcome to the latest episode of The Checkup. My name is Kate Hickey and I'm part of Barry Nelson's National Health Law Team. There is no doubt that the impacts of climate change are increasing and the evidence shows that some of those changes could be irreversible. January 2020 was the Earth's hottest January on record. In Australia, millions of Australians endured a summer from hell, either fighting for their very survival when their communities were ravaged by bushfires or in our cities when they wheezed through smoke-filled days, the likes of which we had never experienced before. The smoke had barely cleared when many areas were hit with the opposite extreme, with flash flooding and wild storms. Hospital emergency departments are at the forefront of dealing with the impacts of the increasing numbers of floods, heat waves, bushfires and other natural disasters that are being driven by climate change. We are very fortunate to have Dr Lai Heng Fung joining us on this episode. Lai Heng is an emergency physician in Sydney. She is also chair of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine's Public Health and Disaster Committee and a member of the Doctors for the Environment Australia. Today we're talking to Lai Heng about climate change, its links to our healthcare system and our health, and what we can do to prevent further damage and what our future might look like if we don't take action. Thank you so much for joining us, Lai Heng. We are very fortunate to have you here. It's a pleasure and uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, taking part in this podcast because I think the more people know about uh, the link between health and climate change, the more likely we are to change behaviour so that we can go on a trajectory that's uh, better for our planet. Absolutely. Thank you. Lai Heng, I know you're extremely passionate about climate change and that you've featured in and written several articles on this topic. For an emergency department doctor, that could seem like a potentially unrelated interest. Can you tell us a bit about why you became so involved in campaigning with respect to climate change? I tell people that I'm a reluctant activist and uh, I've become involved in it uh, because I've seen and um, uh, I've observed directly the impacts of climate change and I don't think that people have made the connections yet and uh, I don't think that enough has been done uh, in terms of enacting policies that would actually mitigate against um any extreme weather events and other causes of uh, climate-related change. I do happen to have a public health background. Um, My background was in disaster health and uh, I've always been interested in uh, population um, health and also health promotion. And uh, I think it's uh, definitely very much related to climate change. And I call myself a reluctant activist because I realized just doing my clinical work, I will never be able to effect changes that can actually make a difference to decreasing our CO2 emissions and also doing anything that could impact on um, improving health for the population. And therefore, I felt that I needed to speak up. Um, In August last year, the Australian Medical Association formally declared climate change a health emergency, 
pointing to clear scientific evidence indicating severe impacts for our patients and communities now and into the future. Laiheng, can you explain to us the reasoning behind making such a declaration and what it means? So I'm an emergency physician and I'm used to seeing very, very critically unwell patients and acting immediately. And we don't collect all the information before we act on treating patients. So when you call something a public health emergency, it means that the planet is critically unwell and we need to fix things now, not tomorrow, not in 20 years' time. And uh, we actually need to put in place systems that not only will improve our health infrastructure, we actually have to change policy to decrease CO2 emissions, i.e. getting to the cause of the problem. So when you call something an emergency, you put aside a lot of different um, business as usual things and you actually enact policy that can change the trajectory of our planet. And it's um, just to um, also say that it's not just the AMA now, uh, 25 health organisations did come together and declared climate change a public health emergency um, a few months ago. Um, and uh, that includes um, the Australasian College for Physicians, um, anaesthetics, GP, the um, nursing um, professional associations as well, and the Climate and Health Alliance. So um, all of them recognise that it's a big problem and we should join forces to help make some changes in our policy. Thank you. That seems to be a really important step. Leihang, in Australia over summer, it was really hard to mistake probably the most obvious effects of our warming planet that we have seen to date. I'm talking, of course, about the bushfires that consumed large parts of our country and destroyed and threatened many properties and also sadly took lives. What was your experience with the bushfires and what did the emergency departments look like during that time? So I work in Sydney and uh, we were a bit uh, further away from the epicenter of the bushfires, but I have heard from my colleagues. So I, I'll share both perspectives. So even in Sydney, I do work in the southwest. Um, so uh, there were uh, 30% more emergency presentations for respiratory and cardiovascular related illnesses because those two have been um, re you know, uh, there are strong studies that have shown a link between pollution and exacerbation of your respiratory and cardiovascular conditions. So basically our presentations increase. Usually in the summer, our numbers drop. It's only in winter that it's high, but this time we didn't see a drop. We just saw high number of patients. Um, and there were people with asthma who hadn't used their puffer for years coming in because of the smoke. Less clearly, um, there's a lot of anxiety associated with the bushfires. Um, so they've been linked to increased um, mental health presentations, increased suicides in people with pre-existing mental health conditions. And they've also been linked to um, obstetrics complications like um, increased preterm labor and uh, intrauterine growth retardation. So these are things that are not reported and you certainly don't see it as obviously as someone who can't breathe. Um, but uh, um, in the more rural areas, more affected areas, they've actually seen firemen who've come in with smoke inhalation injuries and older patients who normally be, you know, um, uh, 
fully treated who had to be possibly palliated um, because they didn't have enough resources. And uh, there were also um, young people who were obviously anxious about that, especially when you know that they're losing their their houses, they're losing their jobs, and um, they have to look after their um, you know, elderly relative. And I just want to mention specifically that this um, climate change is um, all about health inequity. So the people who have the least resources to be able to cope with things are the people who are most affected. So we are happily kind of um, staying indoors with our air conditioning on. Uh, and there are a lot of people who live in um, apartments that have very bad seal in their windows. They don't have air conditioning. So you imagine um, staying in a 40 degree heat apartment mm with no air conditioning, with a smoke that's 10 to 15 times the hazardous um, quality that's um, acceptable yeah, absolutely. usually. Yeah. So, Very sad for a lot of people. Some media outlets were reporting that breathing the air on those particularly smoky days in Sydney was the equivalent to us smoking 30 cigarettes a day. Do you think that's an accurate description of what we were experiencing? Yes. yes. I think uh, people have already got it that smoking kills you. Mm. So they've done a really good public health campaign with that. Whereas people are not clued into the fact that air pollution kills you too, even though WHO has actually made a direct link between air pollution and you know, dying prematurely. Uh, that's because they've had the chance to do some studies in places like New Delhi and Beijing. Uh, that's used to having that kind of high-level pollution, whereas uh, we have been protected so far, but not this summer. Mm. So this is, I think, uh, the beginning of what is to come if no mitigation measures are put in by the government. We've already talked about people with pre-existing health conditions. Were there any other conditions that you saw, perhaps unexpectedly, that people, where people were suffering? Not so much. Um, but as I say, um, like the anxiety is yeah. very difficult because they don't present to emergency. But, yeah. you know, it does kind of build up in a community. And I know that there is a lot of uh, community anxiety about what the future holds. And I know you touched before on the smoke increasing the risk of stroke and cardiovascular events and that the air quality we saw in Sydney seemed to correlate with a greater proportion of people presenting with those conditions. Do we know why that occurs? So I guess um, the um, health risk from the air pollution is due to these very, very small particles um, that uh, are in the air that you can't actually see that deposits in your airway and also deposits in your blood vessel. And after a prolonged period of time, they cause things that um, cause your heart attack, such as atherosclerosis. And they also cause um, changes in your airway that could lead to chronic airway diseases. And I'm not I'm sure the direct link with um, the preterm labor and that, but it probably has to do with placental circulation. Uh, so, but an expert will be able to um, tell you more. Yeah. But uh, it's it's been published. Yeah, but so, you're right. We weren't hearing a lot about that. Yeah, particular. In fact, I didn't hear about that at all. Yeah. I just wanted to ask a little bit about um, masks because during those particularly smoke-filled days, we did see a lot of people walking around wearing masks and we were hearing 
some reports in the media that masks were not helpful or useful or that certain masks were not helpful or useful. So given that we're probably going to unfortunately experience more of these days in the future, um, firstly, is it advisable to wear a mask? And if so, what kind of mask should we wear on those days when the air quality is particularly hazardous? Yes, there's been a lot of mixed messaging about the mask um, and a lot of people were buying these trendy masks that actually didn't protect them from uh, the pollution. So the mask that we um, we recommend are the N95 mask, which incidentally is the same mask that you use for coronavirus, mm. but um, it's um, the mask that can sieve out the very, very small um, particles um, and uh, protect your airway and your um, your body. But uh, it's um, more than the mask, I think. You know, we have to think about um, what the government will have to do to monitor the air quality, you know, because the, whether you wear a mask or not uh, depends on what your work is, how long you're out in the environment and also how well sealed your house is, you know. So if you are going out into a very smoky city with uh, 20 times the, you know, uh, hazardous air quality level and you're going to walk around, then um, I probably would advise um, wearing uh, the N95 mask. How about those people who are construction workers whose work is spent 10 hours outside? How are they protected? I don't see masks on them. Yeah. And they are the ones who should be wearing masks. But unfortunately, this mask, although they protect you, they are very, very uncomfortable because how they'll protect you is that they have to fit your face really well so that it's basically sealed uh, because otherwise, you know, the, the air will go in anyway and the particles will be breathed in. So um, you also have um, like moisture when you breathe out. So the mask gets really wet after an hour um, or two and you have to change it, but they are very expensive. And then people will panic buying this mask. Yeah. And I think that's why they sent out a kind of, you know, this mixed message because they don't want people who don't need it to buy the mask, but they also, you know, want people to wear it, but there has to be special instructions how to wear it to protect yourself because otherwise you're just putting on an uncomfortable mask and it doesn't protect you at all. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's very useful. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, we've talked about smoke, air pollution, but I just want to talk a bit about general air pollution because the World Health Organization has reported that more than 90% of the world's population breathes air that is not compliant with its air quality guidelines and that there are about a million people each year killed by the effects of ambient air pollution, which a lot of people probably don't realise how harmful just general air pollution is because I suppose we don't see it. And I, I thought it was really interesting to read recently that during the reduced industry in China as a result of the coronavirus outbreak that the air quality has significantly improved, Definitely. which is pretty good evidence, isn't it? So do we know how harmful this general air pollution is to our immediate health? Well, actually, no. WHO has come out to say that there is a direct link mm. because there are enough studies to show mm. and consistently uh, replicated that um, air pollution can kill you. Mm. Um, people in Australia just happen to get a taste of that that people in Delhi has had for years. Mm. So when you have prolonged exposure to hazardous um, air quality, um, it's it will impact on your health. We just had probably five times more mm -hmm. uh, 
all at once yeah. in summer. Whereas these people have slightly lower but still hazardous um, air quality that they have to breathe in without protection um, for years. So if we had that, we probably would also get sick, mm. you know, quicker. Yeah. Um, so, but we uh, they're still not sure about the um, whether it's dose related, whether if it's higher, you need shorter time before you get sick or anything like that. So we've talked about air pollution and um, the bushfire smoke. I just wanted to touch on another effect that we're seeing of climate change, which is the extreme weather events that we're seeing, um, heavy, heavy rain and damaging winds. Apart from the obvious injuries as a result of those events, which you may see in emergency departments, are there any other risks as a result of these types of weather events to human health? Of course there is. Um, in fact, in our annual scientific meeting last year, we actually did a simulation of this kind of scenario of tens of thousands of people affected by a natural disaster. Because uh, if you have a flood, it's not just a flood itself that injures people. In fact, that's probably like, you know, smaller proportion of cases. It's also people when their water supply gets cut off, um, you have elderly people who will come in with dehydration, mm. young children who might get gastroenteritis, mm. and then you have um, people who don't have electricity and, you know, then you can get some minor trauma related to that. But again, it's back to mental health. You know, it's having this continually happening um, you know, at different times of the year so that you're actually not sure whether you're living in a house that will be will be safe the next year. Mm. And uh, you're afraid if you live near the water that, you know, the next year your house could be gone yeah. uh, and you're not insured. I think a lot of insurance companies don't insure for uh, what they call extreme weather events, but these extreme weather events will happen more frequently. Yeah. And they'll probably be more severe. And if you have people who are already living in fear, not knowing if um, they could go to work. You know, next thing you know, they lose their homes and they lose, you know. Um, so it's it's a lot of anxiety and mental health and um, there's definitely studies done about that as well. So just touching on that insurance issue, because as lawyers, we work closely with many large insurers and we know that climate change is having a huge impact on the way they do business. And the Insurance Council has, in fact, recently warned that natural disasters like we've been seeing will have a serious impact on the cost of insurance, potentially making insurance only something that the wealthy can afford. So as someone involved in community health and social justice, how big an impact would this have on people's well-being? Yeah, that's why I say climate change is a health inequity, mm. a social you know, inequity issue. Mm. You know, the people who can least have any flexibility in having these events impact on their lives are the ones who will be impacted the most. Mm. And that's why I've come out very strongly to speak up because as a doctor, I'm well respected in the community and people actually listen to me. Mm. And I want to harness that to actually make an impact on people who are powerless and poor and unable to speak for themselves because we've already seen it. You know, mm. In fact, climate change has been a reality in developing countries for a long time. You think about Bangladesh with the floods, you think of people affected by the cyclones and typhoons. and But we are feeling it now in a in a um, developed country, um, but again, it's according to income 
and uh, socioeconomic status. And uh, I think as a government, they have to make sure that they they protect everyone mm. and put in some extra insurance, social insurance, not the insurance companies, for to protect these people um, yeah. who will lose their homes, their jobs, their security. Absolutely. We've touched on this and I'm winding it up now, but mental health, I mean... Obviously, this is a huge, climate change is a huge thing and sometimes it seems hopeless and insurmountable, particularly for for young people because this is effectively the future that they're inheriting. Um, You know, how how do we best encourage them to be hopeful? I think they've already taken matter into their own hands with, uh, if you look at the school strike for climate action, there are a lot of very passionate people who are going out there uh, to protest um, and I think, you know, peaceful protest is actually good um, to put a message across because uh, it's their way of saying we've got major concerns for our very existence, mm. actually, and you're not listening mm. and therefore we are letting our concerns known mm. to you. Uh, this is no longer something that, you know, some teenagers who are going through, you know, some angst moments, you know, wanting to protest. This is actually they are realising because their view of um, their uh, life is very black and white. And uh, it's actually, you know, quite clear Mm. that climate change is here, it's real, it's affecting their life, and therefore they want to do something about it. And I applaud that. And I think having a cause for them to fight for will certainly improve their mental health because they would have a sense of purpose rather than wallowing in, you know, just... uh, Hopelessness. Yeah, hopelessness. Yep. And just lastly, for anyone listening who's concerned about this issue, as we all should be, what is the one thing you think we should all be doing right now? Who should we be putting pressure on? Your politicians, your members of parliament. Uh, So um, Zali Stegall is putting um, through a climate change bill through parliament Uh, in March, um, and I would like to encourage everyone to write to your MPs to support that because uh, even though she's hoping to get cross-bench support, uh, I'm just not convinced that she would get there unless there is a groundswell of support from everyone in Australia, the young, um, the old, and everything in between. And if you can vote, definitely exercise your vote to vote in members of parliament that would actually support policies that would uh, decrease our carbon dioxide emissions and help our health. That's great advice. Lai Heng, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss this extremely important issue. We really appreciate your insight. It's been a pleasure. As always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to get in touch via our website. We will include any resources and helpful links in the show notes of this episode. Thank you again, Dr. Fung, and thanks to our listeners for tuning into The Checkup. Up.